0: well good evening ladies gentlemen and closet statists it is another episode of the most disliked podcast in the libertarian circles it is not a real libertarian podcast um today we've got an interesting episode uh, it's a little bit different than what we usually do uh which is just say dumb shit so we have an intellectual on today um and i know some of you may struggle with this and i apologize but uh, before we get into that i've got my god-awful plug i've got to do here uh it is uh mr jack casey this guy uh the the fabio of libertarianism look oh, whoops I should probably uh share my screen yeah i'm struggling today boys And if I can, this is falling apart real quick. Oh God. Oh geez. There we go. All right. Get together now. So here we go. We got, (laughs) we're back. (laughs) So we got Mr. Jack Casey here. Uh, you know, the Fabio of libertarianism, that golden locks, uh, And I did want to mention something. He said he loved playing pretend growing up. Uh, Apparently, that's still a favorite pastime of his, uh, just like most libertarians. But uh, he did what's called a book, and he wrote three of them so far. Um, The Royal Green is the first in the series. Uh, The second one, if I can pull it up here, is the Creepy Ghost Lady. No, it's the Silver Throned, And then the third one, which is yet to be released. Da, da 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 It's coming this summer. So, yeah. Go check him out. He's uh, libertarian-esque, even though there's no such thing as a real libertarian. So, uh, don't at me. But today, on today's episode, um, we have got a very special guest. Like I said, an intellectual. But this is not him. This is Mr. Rich Leach. Uh, Mr. Will Daughtry, my co-host. And then... Mr. French from practicallibertarian.com. dot com.
1: I uh, I've never been accused of being an intellectual, so I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> me neither, but that's no surprise to anybody in this room.
2: <laughs>
1: well, thanks for having me on, guys.
2: Thanks for All being ahead, here. Bud.
0: So, if you want to, just uh, kind of give us a quick run through. Uh, I've got a video here. I was going to show. uh, but I can do this real quick. That's actually, let's do this real quick. Never mind. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to put myself through that humiliation. Um, I've <laughs> be- hit <laughs> the bottle early now, boys. He- <laughs> this 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 episode is not sponsored by Jim Bean, but if, uh, Jim, if you're watching, I got it. It should, <laughs> should be. So, uh, um, Micah, if you want to just kind of walk us through the uh, elevator pitch of kind of what you got going on, which uh, we all three watch and fucking love the messaging you've gotten. this. It's it's phenomenal.
1: I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll give the 30,000 feet looking down. So, um, I mean, honestly, it was when I first joined the Libertarian Party, my first issue really was, um, was national debt and things like that. But when I got into the Libertarian Party, it was interesting to me that the conversations that I had in libertarian circles were extremely similar to conversations I had in black circles for lack of a better term. I'm going to use the term black here. Um, and as I kind of dove into that a little bit more, and the more I researched, more I understood it, it's, it was, it, there's clearly an issue with libertarian conversation running in parallel with things that the black community care about, but those parallel lines never intersecting, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's an issue here. And if you, If you look at American history, what you find is time after time, uh, the American government kind of negatively imposing itself on the black community, whether it be obviously from super obvious stuff at the beginning with slavery and all that kind of stuff, Jim Crow with laws that prohibited black people from doing things all the way up through crime bills and the war on drugs. And there's just this, this, um, this steady beat of government intervention in black people's lives in overt ways. But the, The other half of that coin, the other side of that coin are things like welfare and government programs and government aid programs that that kind of undermine the community and family from the other side. So you've got these two things, this rock and this hard place that the black community are in between both government, um, both government imposed things that are crushing the community in the middle of those two things. So when you take that into account, it would it would make sense that. A party like the libertarian party would be you know the answer for the black community where it's a party that wants to um get that social that that over um that overreaching social safety net out from underneath to let the communities and families thrive and also get that government oppression off the top and allow for you know black success essentially but that message has never been put in a way that has, that has resonated with the black community. And that's kind of where I'm trying to work that out. I'm trying to do that math and figure out how to take what is very obvious to me and make it very obvious to everybody else. So don't know how well I did it. It's, it's a 20 minute speech I just tried to cram into about you know 60 seconds. So I apologize if I left a lot of stuff out, but that's the, that's the general thrust of it. I feel like there's a message that the Libertarian Party owns that is perfect for this community and we're just not connecting, if that makes any sense. Is that, is that what you were looking for?
0: Yeah, I would say that's a that's a really good um will say breakdown a quick, you know, quick 60-second huddle on what's going on. Um Yeah, I mean, it it's a really good video for anybody who's not watched it yet. I mean, it's 22 minutes that are well spent on a very informative piece and um I know when you and I first spoke on it, I, my biggest I think I told you my biggest grievance on it was at the end where it kind of it, there's a statement that you make that kind of almost looks as if you're deterring black people from the libertarian party, but it's not You're it's a criticism on the movement as a whole saying, Hey, you've got to be more inclusive of, you know, black Americans who are coming in and the imagery that we have currently is not conducive of bringing these people in.
1: Yeah. I, um, that, that segment that you're talking about at the very end is, is derived from personal experience. So, um, you know, I've been a libertarian for about 10 years now, and I enjoy going to libertarian functions. I really do. It, you know, it's the most entertaining thing you can do with your time is to go hang out with libertarians. Right. And I would sit down at some of these tables and, you know, small groups, eight, ten libertarians. And I would I would say, hey, listen, you know, these things the black community is dealing with libertarians have the answer. It's it's clear as day to me that libertarians have the answer. And the libertarians around the table would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, why can't you know why? My The number one question I got from libertarians is things like, I, I enjoy my freedom of speech. Why can't I say the N-word, right? Like, hey, man, I get that that's an issue. Like, I, I get what you're getting at. But, dude, we – like, this is why it's hard to sit down as a person of color at these tables and have these discussions is because there's all this other noise that, you know, these things don't nece- necessarily affect the average libertarian. So that's nothing they've ever looked at or really focused on. So when you try and talk to them about it, it's like, OK – I don't want to hear about that. Here's the thing that affects me in this box. Let's talk about that. So I long monologue to say the reason that that segments at the end of the video is I'm trying to prepare any person of color that goes to a libertarian event after watching my video to understand a set expectations that you're going to walk into an environment that is not going to be what you it's you're not going to sit down across the table from a bunch of people that, that have shared life experiences with you. There's going to be some friction there. They're going to have different things in this conversation they want to talk about versus what you want to talk about. That's what that is. That's why I put that in the end of the video. Hmm.
3: I'd like to meet these hey, that, libertarians um, who are I, asking you for permission to say the N word because that, that's useless. I don't know. They don't. They clearly have a uh, a terrible it's, goal it's, for the party. It,
1: well, no, it's a they're they're, they're having a, a philosophical argument. They're wanting to have a philosophical argument of you know where what are the what are the guardrails of free speech. That's a great. That's a great conversation. I want to have that conversation. Right? It's just not the first conversation. Absolutely. Right? Like get to know me a little bit. Let's talk about some stuff that, like, you know, I'm really passionate about. And then if you really want to peel that open, because maybe you don't get a chance that often to speak to a, a black man, right? Maybe that's what it is. And this is their this is their one shot, maybe in their life to tell to ask me why they can't say the n word. So they take it because we're libertarians. And we want to take the <laughs> shot. Right? We want to put that out there. And that's, and again, I don't, it's not, I don't dislike any of these people. I get it. I get it. I get it. It's a legitimate question. It's an absolute legitimate question, but like, let's talk about things that are the bigger picture stuff before we get into this, you know, this other, this other stuff. So I'm not knocking these people necessarily. It is just, it's. It's the traditional libertarian way, man. We, we swing for the fences when we want to know something we go for, we go all out. So, but you're generous and we have to be honest about ourselves that I think nine out of 10 black
3: people would probably walk off and leave that table behind.
1: So this is, this is where I'm trying to find that middle ground. I'm trying to put the, that's, this is the whole point of that of that message is, Hey man, people of color show up and you need to show up you need to register and you need to start running candidates for that community but understand what you're walking into, right? Just understand what you're walking into. It's just a different environment than what you've, you know, what you usually, who the people usually hang out with.
0: Hmm. And whoever uh, Mike is hanging out with, do not ask (laughs) him. (laughs) The first thing you see, do not ask him why you cannot say the
1: N word. I don't mind having having that conversation, by the way. I don't want to have that conversation (laughs) here. I'd rather talk about this stuff with the video, but I actually like, I don't mind having that conversation. I talk about, so I'm, uh, I'm mixed race personally, right? Um, I talk about racial identity a lot to people because people, you know, they understand me to be a fairly open person and I'm more than willing to discuss topics that are sometimes difficult. And so I do get those types of questions. And there's a legitimate conversation to be had there. It's just everything in its own time is is kind of the, my point there, right? Like well, uh, I, I actually probably agree with more of what is said there. I mean I personally don't use the word, right? So like there's – I have an ideology around that that I could have a conversation with somebody on there's just more important stuff out of the gate to deal with is the idea there. Absolutely.
3: Salesmanship. Like you don't, you don't walk (laughs) up to somebody and immediately, you know, talk about the most controversial thing. You have to warm them up and let them know who you are and explain to them your ideas more slowly. I mean, that's awful, but
0: (laughs) yeah. So it's like, it's, so it's like you meet a a trans person for the first time and they say, Hey, I'd, I'd prefer to be called, you know, he, him, for example, you don't go out and say, all right, girl. I mean, it's, 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 right. it's, to me that it's, it's it's like use common sense. Yes, technically, you have the right to say whatever you want to. But, right. however, in my opinion, should you be malicious in what you say, I think the person may have equal
1: recourse to. Uh, well, listen, I, I think you just described. Hands. I just think you just described the, the central tenet of libertarianism. You are you have the right to be a dick. It doesn't mean you should be a dick. Like yeah. society runs way better. Freedom is is way more available if people aren't dicks. It's when people start to become dicks that people think, oh, well, we need to put some guardrails around this. And then you start to take away liberty and freedom, right? Like there's a way that libertarians should present themselves that makes it logical that we could live in a free society without those guardrails and still function. And I think libertarians could be a great advocate for that if we just the little salesmanship, I think, was your word, Will. Yeah.
2: So, no, about concerned. freedom, this is, is uh, what we believe as libertarians is that freedom actually helps us avoid conflict, not create conflict. So, if you're freedoming and you're creating conflict, you might be doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's going to be a little bit depending on who you're dealing with, you know, people who don't like freedom who advocate against it. But right. the general person out there, you know, running around, I, I'm pretty sure uh, if you're creating conflict with your exercising your freedom, it's pretty good. You might want to look in the mirror and make sure you're doing it right.
0: Gotcha. Uh, I do want to answer this question. Uh, Braxton, if you don't make it a dark elf because you get the boosted <laughs> magical powers, uh, you and I are going to throw hands. Wood elf, because
3: archery, because why would you want to do magic? Whatever.
1: Uh, did you play Skyrim? I think I always went Brenton Okay, because you got the extra health. Personally. True. Yes. The I was, early game really is the only time you actually need it. It's true. Well, no, it is true. But
0: uh, I was like one of those people, like, they're like, I'm with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, um, See, that, that's all the show is. It's just like wild comments and me answering them because I can. Um oh. Will's like Jesus, man. Get on with it. Say something. Don't embarrass the shit out of us. Oh, so I guess we're going into nerd hour here. So, uh, Greg Smithy Smith, uh, Nord all the way. That's
3: basic, man. Super vanilla.
2: So, so I'm just I missed being a boomer by I think five years. I have no clue. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> In case somebody is unlucky enough to t- to uh, you know, tune into this thing sometime, I just want them to know it's all right. I'm with you. That's fantastic.
0: <laughs> so, uh, my question was going to be pertaining to how do we change? Uh, how we have to change how we talk about guns. So I guess. Being that the video that you released was talking to um, Black Americans about libertarianism and why they should come over to the Liberty side, um, and I like the Mandalorian picture you used by the way on that topic.
1: Oh, well, um, you read? Yeah, you read that? You read that uh, that article?
0: Uh, I looked through it real quick. I, I'm not good at reading. I'm from East Tennessee, so. <laughs> um, but my question to you would be then. How do you have this discussion with Black Americans about why guns are important? Man, why why is, they should be?
1: That is a that is a loaded question. So if you know any of the history of um, of Black Americans and gun ownership in the United States of America, th- so for example, there was one there was one time the NRA backed uh, a weapon uh, a, a gun regulation in the history of America. Do you know what it is? It was yeah, Ronald Reagan. As governor mm-hmm. of California, passed governor passed regulation. You know why? Because black, black people Panther. were marching with firearms. That's yeah. that was it, man. That was it. So, um, the Second Amendment. If I was if I'm trying to approach uh, the black community and I'm talking about Second Amendment issues, it's we're true believers, right? It's not going to change with the wind. So, I want you know Americans to have the freedom to own firearms. I don't care what color or creed you are it's been shown that that is not the position historically of any of the the other two major parties. So the second that you as a black American aren't acting with your firearm the way that they want you to act, the Republicans will hit you with the law. The Democrats obviously will. The libertarians will stay true on it. We're not, we don't, we don't change with the wind. I think that's the biggest pitch, right? You know what you're going to get from us because we're not just going to say what you want to hear and we're not going to change with you know whatever the the most you know the the popular thing is of the time as far as black gun ownership goes i mean you know there's no there's no group of people um that have more weapons taken from them or confiscated from them or, or what or what have you than black americans right if, they, if you're gonna do if they're gonna come in and, and raid something it's usually an inner city it's usually a low-income area unfortunately a lot of times that means it's a minority community. They're taking guns, they're probably guns owned by black people, right? Um the defense of that, because we have the right to arm and defend ourselves as much as any other American, that's that's libertarians. The Venn diagrams is a perfect circle. The Venn diagram is a perfect circle on that. So that we can't point to history and say, everybody else has screwed you in this department. We want you to. We want you to protect yourselves. We want to give you the tools to do so. And we're not going to change our minds just because, you know, we feel threatened for some reason, like any like anybody else. So that would be kind of how, how I would approach it. I would say it's probably not the the gun culture in the black community is not the same as as Second Amendment gun culture in general. So there is some tweaking. But the underlying message is, you know, it's a right that has been historically taken from you as often or way more often than any, any other group and libertarians will never do that to you. I mean, that's kind of the the angle that I would go at it.
3: And it's kind of, if you think about it with just honestly watching your video and the way the war on drugs has affected the black communities, how could they develop a a gun culture, you know, because government has basically prevented them from having that option. And so we've had
1: the freedom to have it. They haven't even had that freedom yet. I'll give you an example. So I, I, uh, I'm a libertarian. So obviously I own firearms. So I do not carry. And it's not because I don't think that uh, it's impossible for me to be put in a situation where I will need to use a firearm to defend myself and my family. But statistically, I am I am I am far more likely to be viewed as a much greater threat by law enforcement. If I have a weapon on me, even if it's permitted, Hmm. even if it's legal, if I have to say to a law enforcement officer, I have a weapon in my car, on my hip, whatever it may be. I'm far more likely to die in that scenario than actually run into a scenario where I need to defend myself with a firearm just in public because there's an attack of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's ridiculous, but it's statistically true. It's just statistically true because, well, I will say this. I don't live in inner city, Chicago. That changes the math, right? I live in Orlando, Florida. I'm fine. There's, it's going to be an extremely rare occurrence that I run into a scenario just in my normal life where I would need a firearm to defend myself. But I get pulled over quite a bit and just simply stating that I have a firearm within my area puts me at an incredibly a much higher risk than than being able to say there are no weapons in this car. I have no weapons on me. You're completely safe. So, I you know, I don't know if that resonates or if that if you guys get what I'm getting at there, but um but yeah, even in those scenarios, that culture, it's a different culture because a little bit of it is you know the way that it's been policed the way that firearms have been policed in the black community you're right we like concealed carry is not a gung-ho thing for the black community because it puts us at more danger than it does helps us out philando castile is the, the biggest name you know um, example of this where he informed law enforcement that he had a firearm in the car reached for his wallet and he was dead in seconds mm. i mean he told them that he had the firearm and that's you know I got more of a sh- I got more of a chance of dying that way than I do of like getting you know somebody trying to rob a Seven Eleven while I'm standing there. So I don't carry a firearm. Sorry, so, that's a lot. It's a bit of a stretch for the culture conversation, but that's you know part of it.
0: Yeah. So I remember, uh, what was it? About eight months ago, they started on that the talks of make putting Harriet Tubman on what was it the twenty dollar the bill? Twenty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yeah. well, let's be very accurate to the history of it. Harriet Tubman carried a rifle. She did. She did. Yeah. And what people don't know is she worked at two plantations. So her, the plantation that owned her, and then she worked, she cut out this deal to where she could work the plantation next door. Cause I guess the one that she worked at or was owned to, um, they didn't work on weekends. So she worked at the other one on weekends and she actually got a cut of the profits that for, from what she worked, um, and there's a lot there's there's a lot that goes into that, but she basically set up enough money and she was able to buy a rifle, kind of I guess on the black market. I mean she oh. it wasn't really a black market because there was no background checks, right. but somebody was like in a bad spot and they're like
1: she was not supposed to have that rifle is the answer to that yeah yeah she was not supposed to have yeah. it yeah
0: yeah so she bought it and that's that's how her whole mm, kicked my camera again. That's how her whole story starts, though, is she was able to do that because she carried the rifle to protect herself and those in her custody. And I think the uh, omniscient or omniscient of that fact is really, you know, it really is disgusting because it shows you how scared they are of black men and women with firearms. Because uh, as you said, the first time and this this is the first time they talked about gun confiscation in California. California used to be very pro-gun. Right. Is the Black Panthers stormed the Capitol building armed, yeah. but never they never even brandished. I mean, they they were, you know, holstered or they were, you know, low ready, never pointed at anybody, never threatened anybody, nothing. Like that. Gun legislation has not stopped since. Um right. You know, and Reagan carried that into the White House. You know, the NFA, he re-signed the NFA and the 86 uh, machine gun ban. And so all gun legislation in the United States has started with one pivotal event, and that's in 1886. And that's uh, as as slavery was banned in the United States, gun, law, uh, gun legislation started becoming real prominent. <laughs> and, and and that's that's the fact that's of it and true. i mean it, it, yeah i mean that's that's the simple skinny fact of it and the first gun law in the united states the very first one was that slaves could not own guns and then well they got rid of slavery so well we had to start they they had to start passing gun legislation to keep certain people from owning guns and and, and it's just it's really disgusting if you look at it too see guns are my personal like they're 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 my existence right um and it, it, and I know there's a lot more to life than guns, but you can't tell me that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no, I mean, really, if you look at it, though, you know, what is the most critical thing that people need in order to defend their, you know, their rights? First, the First Amendment is to voice your opposition against tyranny. Well, when tyranny overrides the First Amendment, the Second Amendment matters, um, right? And if you look at it, you know, historically. The uh, black America, you know, historically, black Americans are more impoverished than any other ethnic group in the United States. But yet, all gun laws, if you look at them, are designed so that rich people can buy guns,
1: anything that they want. Right. I mean, well, look. I mean, so to to get to your so your point here, so um, you know, (laughs) no, 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 no. This is it's a good conversation. So um, I'll I'll bring I'll bring it back to the Black Panther Party, right? So uh, first of all, I will note. Uh, Black Panthers advocated for socialism. That is not my cup of tea. I'm not like (laughs) endorsing the Black Panther Party here. But if you can look past that, if you look past some of the, there was a lot of propaganda around the Black Panther Party. You should be, you know, you should be afraid of these people, et cetera. If you can get past some of that and look at actually what happened within the party, you know, the first things they did, the first things the Black Panther Party did, and how they gained popularity within the black community was they started a um, feeding kids uh, breakfast program. A lot of kids were going to school hungry. They fed somewhere in the ballpark in Chicago alone. I think they fed 3,000 kids every morning, you know, food. And then uh, they armed themselves and they started to patrol their own streets. Mm -hmm. They started to patrol their own streets to defend themselves from state sanctioned violence from the tyranny, right? They had law enforcement officers coming through their neighborhoods that did not have the best of intentions and they were killing people. They were doing a lot of different stuff, but they were just generally wreaking havoc and they, the Black Panthers armed patrols and walked around the streets and immediately you're right. They started to write, uh, you know, gun laws about how, how you can carry and what you can carry and all kinds of things to prevent that from happening. But in that interim period for black Americans in those places, it got safer for them. The Black Panthers did not make that place more dangerous for them. It got safer for them. And so you're absolutely right. That's when you started to see legislation come out. But how do you get there? You 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 make people afraid, right? There's your first step. You make people terrified that Black Panthers aren't patrolling their streets, that they're coming to your street and they're going to break down your door and, you know, kill everybody in your neighborhood and all that stuff. So you you put that fear and that terror. And when you're afraid, you're far more likely to give up what? You're far more likely to give up your liberties and your freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's, that's, I mean, you know, that strategy works, by the way, in all scenarios. If you want to get somebody to give up their freedom, just scare them, scare them enough and they'll do it. Hashtag 2020. That's right. Yeah. Look at look at 2020. That's how you got gun legislation. But a lot of it was exactly what you say. It's the the fear and terror of the black community in a lot of ways led to the gun legislation kind of culture that we have.
3: So By not to change the subject at all, man. But one thing I was really impressed with in your video that you dove into was talking about, you know, how the black families kind of changed over time as legislation. Right. Affected it, and one of the things that really stuck with me is how you talked about how the welfare state happened first initially, and really the effects weren't that different. You know, nothing really happened; the family stayed together. There wasn't any, you know, increase in fatherlessness among Black communities.
1: But then the war on drugs happened, and that's when really statistically everything started changing. It's a one-two punch. Yeah, it was a one-two. It was a one-two knockout punch. I mean, you had uh, prior to World War One, uh, like I like I mentioned prior to World War One, the the highest group. The highest marriage rate for a group was black women. Black women were married more than any other racial group in the United States. Today, again, a black child in America has a only 33 percent chance of being raised in a home with two married parents. It is why it's it's the gap. I, I, as I know, it's it's a 24 percent gap from the next closest people group. Um, that's huge. That matters. Even if you listen, even if you have a bad father. There are th- dad still put guardrails on how you develop your identity, and you know how it, what what pushes you to be better and those types of things. Even if you've got a bad dad, you at least look at him and go, "I'm going to be better than that couch potato drinking Miller, you know, drinking beers. I'm going to be better than dad." E- so even if he's bad, just just that alone, just those guardrails alone. Versus you take that out of that house, now you've got to look somewhere else for identity. And who the hell knows? You've got an impressionable teenage young man. I don't care who you are. If you have a lack of direction in your identity, you're probably going to get into some nasty stuff. But yeah, that change happened because the war on drugs physically stripped black men from the community at ridiculous rates, at rates surpassing critical mass. And the welfare state allowed for the remaining people in the community, the, the women that were left behind, to still be taken care of just instead of by... A husband it was it was the government so the the value of that position the man in the household goes away or diminishes for enough of the community that it just never recovers it just never recovers and so there's your one-two punch welfare didn't do it by itself it took the second piece you had to you had to create the 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 welfare state in the back end but that didn't immediately do it you then had to force people to have to turn towards that welfare state and that was there that's the 70s 80s 90s and by 2000 2010, you're past the point of no return. I don't know. You know, I'm, it's not a hopeless thing, right? We're not gonna. We're not gonna say it's a hopeless thing. There are people in the black community that are rebuilding this. When I talk to black men, we talk almost exclusively about fatherhood and being fathers. And I'm a I'm a youth football coach. I've got a lot of black men that are in my community that are coaching. So that when I talk to you know little Timmy. Who I know doesn't have a dad, man. I'm having a different conversation with that kid. I'm having a conversation about how, how to kind of build that identity in him to to be great and do better things and you know overcome himself and push himself and all these things. There are black men that are trying to fill this void in the community in in a in a myriad of different ways. I'm not so I'm not I don't want to say it's a lost cause, but it isn't. It's it's an uphill battle. It is an uphill battle, and we didn't get here by accident. It's you know, a little by design and a little bit of just horrible happenstance, but we're here. We got to solve it.
2: So it's almost like they took the
1: ability
3: for people to thrive and kind of traded it for survival. Instead, that's you know, right. it let you skim by, but you know, it, it builds reliance. Sadly,
1: um, well, that, listen, that's awesome all, what you're doing,
3: man. In the all you got
1: to know, all you got to know is if you're a if you're a black woman on welfare, if you're a single mom, and you decide to get married, there's a financial penalty to you for that, right? Hmm. You lose your welfare, right? Now, there's a logic to that. I'm not saying that that was designed so that black women don't get married. The the logic is, okay, well, now you have two incomes in your household. You don't need welfare anymore. That is a logical position for why you don't have welfare after you get married. But the practical application of that is you there's a there's a, a financial hit to you getting married. So we're all human beings. You apply that on a grand scale, of course you're going to get the result of, less black women are going to get married like that's the end result if you're going to stop paying people as soon as they get married they're not going to get married so how do you solve that i mean there's that's a much broader conversation but those types of things that's how that's how we got here it's not that the idea was initially well some of the war on drugs was specifically to disrupt the community but a lot of the other side of it is it wasn't initially the idea that this is specifically targeted to break apart a black family but the end result just based on how the world functions is that it breaks apart a lot of black families
0: so I will say that um, I my argument always comes back to culture. And it, there's, there's a lot of evidence that it's not just the black community who's been destroyed by the welfare state. Um, I live in East Tennessee where methamphetamine is king crop. I mean, there's a lot of people who, you know, do meth and live off the welfare state. And you can easily tell, you know, where these areas are. They're areas where, you know, a mom may have kids, you know, we'll say she has six kids, be six different dads. Yep. And, you know, and I'll say, I've got family of my own who basically just refuse to work because it's cheaper for them to just stay on welfare. Their food right. paid for their rents paid for uh, their Everything's fucking paid for, you know, they live better than me. They get, they have a better paycheck at the end of the month than I do. <laughs> and, and, but uh, I mean, is it, is it, they have no problem with that. They're like, ah, fuck it. Why, why should it's I work? When I get paid it's, better."
1: It's built into the culture. You're right. It's built into the culture of uh, of you know impoverished communities. It's that's kind of been built into their culture. That's that's true. Regardless, it's generational, and it's,
0: generational. it's not that's just. It's true. not like, it's not like you know, you know, my parents. You know, worked hard, and I'm like, "Ah, fuck it. Why should I work? I'll go. I'll go live off the state." It's a generational thing. At some point in time, somebody had it hard. And their kids are like, oh well, mom and dad did it. You know, they don't account for the fact that you know they worked hard. They were like, oh well, they're on welfare, so I'm gonna go do that. Yeah. At, at some point in time, that that it, that occurs, and and it it just it is seen as this this targeted mechanism. Um, I will say, I, and I think you covered this in your video that it does target certain groups more than others because that's just how certain things work but i I do think a lot of it is culture and it's this this idea that you have to tell your kids that and and it does fall back to the two-parent home every stat says that a two-parent home and it doesn't even specify male or male and female two-parent home it just says two-parent uh will always perform higher than a single-parent home because you have to have role models that give you that guidance as you said earlier so you have to have, you know, these two people that can give you opposing, you know, opposing sides of an argument, you know, someone who, th- th- these are two people who, so for example, cause I'm getting in the weeds here because I'm an idiot and I can't get my thoughts straight. Um, it's actually like my brain moves so fast and my mouth can't keep up, which is a rare problem. But, uh, so we'll, we'll put it like this, right? So my wife and I are very different people. I am very outspoken. I'm very loud and I'm very upfront with things. I, try to control what I say my wife on the other hand she's very shy but she if you talk to her she will tell you something and she's like shit I probably shouldn't have said that but what that's a great thing for my kids because they will see both sides of that aspect and hopefully they can find a good middle ground they can have a thought out thought process before they say something but also not be loud and obnoxious like I am so it really does. It, it's it's the two conflicting um, personalities that really develop a you know a really well developed child. They if you just got one parent that says that, that that's the only thing you ever see, like you said, they will look for that other role model, whether it's a you know a right. single father home or a single mother home. They will look for that 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 missing piece, because um, human psychology and human biology always dictates that there has to be. You know, two. It's kind of like reverse Highlander. There can only be two. Um,
1: <laughs> it's the it's but, the Sith rule of two, is what you're getting at. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's no, a better. So, but, so <laughs> listen. The, the, the analogy I draw, because I've actually had this conversation before. So, the analogy I draw is it's depth perception, right? It takes both your eyes seeing two different things to give you depth perception, and that's the same thing. Uh, you describe yourself and your wife. I, we my wife and I are very similar, right? I'm I do this and give speeches and do videos. And she does not. She is very much kind of more. But when she speaks, when she does say something, it's impactful because she's thought it. She's thought it through, et cetera. My kids get to see that, right? They get to see me spouting off about whatever the heck I want to talk about on a given day, and then they get to see my wife, who has a much more measured and calm approach to it. And they understand. Oh, did we lose Chris? They no, I'm no, so here. I'm disappointed. Got it. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, um. So they get that. They get those perspectives. And even in their own development of their own identity, they don't necessarily have to follow one or the other. Right. They can find a middle ground. They can take parts of what I'm good at and parts of what my wife are good at and create something better within themselves. That's important. That's that's how we truly build. I mean, that's really how we build identity. It's you have your you've your a lot. Well, if it's a one parent household, a lot of that second piece in kind of finding your focus comes from wherever the heck else, whatever appeals to you most, which normally is not a positive thing. So so yes, uh, in, in tracking with your analogy, Chris, it does take two to kind of give the right uh, the right environment for that development. There are always two. A master <laughs> right. and a learner. It's an apprentice, <laughs> first of all. If you're going to quote it, you got to quote it right. <laughs> <Apprentice>. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I've been watching Star Wars all month, and it's, I still <laughs> fucked it up that's too good so so I, I do want to kind of touch on something a little lighthearted, and I promised we would talk about this and you know what it is by your smile Go so ahead. I'm going to have to change the name of the podcast because apparently I am now a real boy um, I received my first 30 day band today on Facebook you did but it was me first what did you do I don't know.
3: Yeah, that's the best you have part.
0: No idea. Not a clue. So I can actually post on here uh, what I what what they sent me. Um, but so I would so I've been driving all day. I had to go out to Morristown and send some stuff to Rob Burke and do some things out there and then come back. You know, big boy stuff. Um, and then I finally make it home. I was like, all right, cool. I'll sit down, have me a drink, and I'll check Facebook out, see what's going on. And I pulled up and I'm like. 30 day ban. Damn. The hell did I do? <laughs> Never said. So somebody was like, Hey, you should probably go check your email. It probably says in your email. And I was like, cause I used an email. I've not touched in probably like a decade. I was like, Oh hell. How do I get to this email? So after about 30 minutes, I get in there and it basically said, uh, your Facebook, you know, page Darnell's guns, which is my official gun business page has been perma-banned or permanently removed from from viewing on Facebook for violation of these terms of services, and then it doesn't list the terms of services. I was like, okay. So, and it says you can you can uh, challenge this. Uh, you can um, starts with an R. Uh, whatever. You can basically challenge this, uh, this uh, ban. And I said, ah, eh, fuck it, why not? And then I do the whole thing, and I put all my information in, take a picture of my license, all that crap. And then, like, 20 minutes later, I was like, you know what? I'm going to create a fake Facebook. I'll just, I'll go, like, not Darnell, first name not, last name Darnell, whatever. I go to log in, and it pulls up my Facebook account. And I was like, the hell? So they sent me another email saying, oh, yeah, we messed up. We were wrong. And I was like, damn. Whoever wrote me that email needs to talk to my wife because she never miss that
1: shit. You never heard that yeah. before. It's always you. So the reason the reason I was laughing when because Darnell because uh, Chris and I were talking about this earlier. So I um, the video you guys watch has been pulled from Facebook twice. So they pulled it down twice for fraud. And what I eventually figured out was happening was. In in most of my writing and most of my articles, I don't use my own face. I just usually have some image that represents whatever the content of the article is. But for that video, I use my own likeness. And people kept flagging it for fraud because they assumed that it was an impossibility for a black man to be a libertarian. Wow! So they essentially said, and I got called a stock photo model a lot. They're like, they photoshopped a libertarian hat on a stock photo model. A bunch of people said, uh, that person's not real. It's a stock photo. Uh, this is this is some sort of libertarian think tank trying to fake this black man in order to uh, to to throw off the Democratic vote. So this is fraud. I got pulled down twice. I had to prove to Facebook that I was the dude in the photo two times to get them to keep that video up. So. Gotta love Facebook, man. (laughs) I've heard people be called not
0: a real libertarian because of policy beliefs. You were called not a real libertarian because you don't even exist anymore. Just who I am. Yep.
3: Kudos, kudos to you, man. That's cool. I (laughs) wish I had that problem. That's pretty badass, actually. (laughs) Oh man, you're like an anomaly to them. You're like you can't
1: possibly exist. You're like be real. I'm not allowed to be real real, for sure. So, can
0: you follow that on your tactics? Like, not a real human. Like I wish cause, I mean, that'd be great. Think about
1: how much money you save in taxes every year. And the, the amount of, the amount of taxes that come out of my commission checks. Uh, yeah, I would very much like to pay. Hey, I'm, I'm not real. Facebook says I'm not real. So you guys can't tax me. Like I'm not, I don't exist. It's great. It's my, that's, I love it. I might try that out.
2: Oh, so Marshall,
3: what's, uh what's your recommendation as far as I know you see the problem with our messaging and stuff. What are some of the recommendations you have because I work with the Oklahoma libertarian Party and I'm an officer there and that's something we're constantly trying to strive for is getting better messaging
1: what yeah, are some man, things you of it, think we could do a lot of it a lot of it is listening right so um, as listen we're all libertarians because we we took the time to develop our own opinions and we really want to we want to talk about those opinions we want to get those out there right that's why we're here that's why we do what we do in this realm um, and so when we sit down with people a lot of times I personally get talked at. Right. I I don't get talked to. I get talked at. So the first thing with like any other human interaction is just, you know, you got to listen to people. You got to understand their struggle. You got to go where they're at. Right. Um, That is not necessarily easy. You know, Uh, of the four men on screen right now, I could probably walk into a black church and deliver this message. I would not recommend it to you guys. Right. Like if there there is that hurdle, you, you know, there's there's a hurdle there. But that's where you got to be you got to show up and you got to talk to those people and you got to listen and then un- understand enough of the culture of whatever the can by the way black people aren't a monolith right the culture is going to be regional the culture is going to be down to the specific you know area or where the building you're sitting in so you've got to understand what the culture is of the people that you're talking to and then after that the message is is fairly natural if you if you care enough to really learn about the people you're talking to libertarian libertarian beliefs are fundamentally very clear and simple beliefs don't mess with people let them live their lives as long as they're not encroaching on the rights of others that is not a difficult message you just have to understand what the people you're talking to care about most and how that fits within that that realm that box of what they're doing so that is a very high-minded answer to your very specific tactical question um it you also need to you need you know yeah you need to get more people that look like me. I mean, it's a little chicken and egg, but you, you, to be able to walk into that realm, I mean, we, you know, we were discussing a little bit, Chris, uh, prior how I don't talk about what was the acronym you used that's much shorter than the acronym I would typically use for G- GSM, GSM. GSM. Yeah, I am not in that community, so if I want to go talk to that community about libertarianism, I'm probably not the best messenger for that. That's just a reality of like human nature. So as an as frustrating as that is. That's that's kind of the case. Like we need more. We need you know, I hate to say we need to elevate a particular person or a group of people within the Libertarian Party because of the way they look. But to some extent, you, you know, we do need to have black libertarian candidates and we do need to have people advocates in the Libertarian Party in affiliates that are in positions that, you know, when they walk up and start talking to groups of people, you know, hey, the Libertarian Party believes in what we're doing. They made me vice chair of the affiliate, right? Like, I'm the vice chair. There, there's an element there that we we need to plug more people like that in. Now, I say that with an incredible amount of trepidation because I don't think that this needs to be a, some sort of quota or affirmative action system within the Libertarian Party. Like, that's not what I'm going for here, right? It's, it, it should be a natural thing that we should want to do. Because we want to reach out to these communities that have been so negatively affected by the government for so many years. It should be a natural progression of how we have these conversations. Um, man, long answer that didn't really answer a question. But that's, that's it. you gotta talk, You got to talk to the people where they're at. you got to understand their culture. You, the, the message will follow when, once you understand the culture because the message is good. We sit on a really good fundamental message. So we just have to learn the culture of the people we need to deliver it to. And then the rest will, the rest will happen.
0: Well, if you look, um, so I agree with what you're saying. I mean, uh, it's very difficult, and especially in modern America, for a white guy to walk up to you know a group of Black Americans and say, "Hey, you all should vote you know this way because X, <laughs> Y, and Z," and that that comes off wrong. I'll tell you what, black...
1: Democrats do it all the time, though. You know how many Democrats I've walked really? up to me and say, "The fact you're not a Democrat, you're an Uncle Tom because you're not a Democrat." I get that. Like people throw that at me, right? It's anyway, No, you're, you're right. I'm not saying run out there and tell, you know, scream at people, but the, the, the piece, the piece you left out is getting to know that person and like understanding that. Right. That's the piece. You yes. Yes. So
0: you and I spoke in Atlanta um, about mm-hmm. a buddy of mine who is an older black gentleman. Um, he and I have spoke over the years um, and he's, said that he's willing to go full libertarian because and he 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 said also he doesn't vote much because he doesn't trust either side right which which is is kind of the 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 important part in all this but he was you know I, I talked to him about it and I said look I don't know what to tell you I don't know how to say you know I know how you were growing up I don't know any of that I said when I was uh 10 I was in Damascus Syria and I said I was the only white kid on our block or outside of my brother. I said, uh, we lived in a country where if they had the opportunity, they would blow us up with a fucking suicide vest just for the yeah. hell of it. Um, and I said, that's not to say that, you know, not to detract anything from your childhood. I'm I said you're much older than me. I'm sure you went through a lot worse. I said, but is it feasible to say that, you know, you could live a better life if the government wasn't involved. He said, well, yeah. I said, do you agree that, you know, policing has major systemic issues and not just for the black community, but for every community? I said, right. a lot of times, you know, you'll see policing problems be, you know, uh, you know, transracial. I said, you'll see, you know, all kinds of people getting the hell beat out of them on fucking TV. I mean, just it's, it's way no more reason. based
1: on income than it is most other things. But that's a, that's a longer conversation, yes. but keep going.
0: No, that's the argument I always have always made is that it's easier to oppress poor people because they don't have the money for lawyers. That's kind of that's argument true. I've made to him, Right. but no, but yeah. So, and I, I would plant these little seeds and over time he was like, you know what, man, he said, I think, he said, I think I'm gonna drop the D and I'm gonna pick up the little L. And I said, that's fine. And he didn't say it like that because that sounds weird. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh but you know, every time we, every time I talk to him now, you know, if somebody else is in the store, you know, he'll he'll talk about libertarianism or not not so much in like the philosophy of it, but he'll say, hey, you know, my buddy, you know, he's a libertarian, this that, and the other thing, he'll he'll give the like real quick elevator pitch. And when he, the first time he did, it, I thought he was making fun of me. I was like, man, eh, whatever, it's fine. But he kept doing it, kept doing. it. I was like, maybe he's you know maybe he's coming around finally. And sure. um, it's it, it's like you said. I can say whatever the fuck I want to to people. You know, uh, there's, people there's, there's people at work that look just like me and they don't give a shit what I say. It's about finding people and what they care about the most and meeting right. them where they're at.
1: Right. I mean, listen, my, um, my, in, in my professional career, I've been in sales for over a decade, right? And I've sold, um, I've sold everything from small business up through Fortune 1000s. And every room I stand in, I don't care how many degrees somebody has on a wall, they're a human being in front of me, and I've got to understand and find what's what they care about. Right? It's it's what's on the customer's mind at any given moment, and until I can find, until I understand what they care about in the scenario, and it could be that they don't want to embarrass themselves to the CEO in a meeting, and so they need, you know, they're really concerned about um, how well things run in X realm or whatever. It might be that you know they've got a, a secretary that they think is cute, and they want to have some, you know, that it's a different. There's a different sales track for that. All, you know, but you've got to figure out what people's driving motive is. And until you understand what they actually care about, I don't care what you are pitching at them. And Until you understand what's actually going to connect with them and why, you know, you're know, you never going to do it well. You're never going to be successful doing it. So until you understand who you're talking to and what they care about, you, you can't pitch your idea at somebody without knowing how they're going to take it first. And then you've got to adjust it. You've got to, you've got to mold it based on – how you think it's gonna land the best. I mean, honestly, that's that's it. That's sales like you said, well, salesmanship one oh one, right? You have to understand what they're thinking about first. But yeah. So they could a lot of people maybe don't care, Chris, because you're not taking the time to really get to know them, man.
0: Well I'll take away from that is your wife better not let you ever get a secretary. So if you talk <laughs> about
1: secretary <it's> being cute. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's good ties, man. Hey, Mike, I've got a question <laughs> for you. Um. So uh, I'm a, I'm a state organizer for the Mises Caucus in Tennessee. And oh, so when oh, cool. you're talking about this, uh, you know, a, a, a community of whatever with a certain vision or a certain something, I don't know how to put it into words. Have you thought about any kind of a caucus model within the Libertarian Party that would help do that? I know that it's kind of weird and it's kind of it doesn't work in identity politics kind of a thing. But do, do you right. see... A model like that that might be so helpful.
1: here's here's what here's what i'll say to that i would desperately avoid having a black caucus in the libertarian party right i would really not want to have that there already is a caucus that names themselves the pragmatic caucus but that's generally what like like if, like if i could do the practical caucus for practical libertarian i would do something like that and within that messaging talk about these things but these things like you know chris has alluded to a couple of times they do transcend race it just so happens that based on how the American system has worked for years. Um, poverty and, and uh, minority issues in poverty, you end up kind of talking about racial issues automatically. Right. But my point is, I think it would be a practical caucus. Like, here's some practical application things we could do to address, you know, issues in the family unit or whatever it may be. Right. Issues in the social safety net and issues in um, the over policing and all those types of things that are more on the oppressive side. And just doing that by itself is going to take care of black American issues. If, if you go and say, I'm going to create a black caucus. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's an argument to be had either way, but I think you put off um, a lot more people than you have to. I just think you put off more people than you have to. Um, I'm a big advocate for addressing the problem and naming it. You know, I, um, we, we, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but, I would prefer a world where it isn't white and black. I would prefer not to have to identify or label myself as a black libertarian. But right now, that's where the artificial fault line lies. So -hmm. that would be the counter argument to say, yes, we should have black caucus. I just I don't think that in libertarianism, I don't think that works. I think you can go practical you can go pragmatic. And solve the problems in the black community without having to label that specific caucus the black caucus again. I give really short answers, guys. I don't know if you've noticed <laughs> really succinct, very short, non-rambling answers, very direct information I give. That's Zen- much better marketing though. You don't want to huh? be so overt
3: about it. You don't want to say, hey, this is the black caucus. But what you can do is, yeah, set it up, you know, name it something completely different and just what you're already doing, essentially, you know. Yeah, focus I mean like that, those issues and real Chris,
1: solutions. Chris just pulled up my page here. So it's I mean, my tagline is an attempt to make libertarianism accessible. It's not an attempt to make libertarianism accessible for black people, right? But if you scroll down, Chris, through to the blog itself, I mean, obviously right here. you. So I specifically tagged the Black Lives Matter. You can see the the different um, uh, uh, headers, right? Libertarian perspective, Black Lives Matter, and other. I write on black issues because that's my world experience. That's my life experience. And so I try to write on some of that intersection of you know, my, my black experience and libertarianism. So it's in there, but that's not the lead of the page. The page isn't practically black libertarian, right? It's just that in a, with the practical application of libertarianism, you kind of address a lot of the things that are most prevalently talked about in the black community. If you practically apply libertarianism, you get to the end game that the black community wants to get to anyway without having to name it necessarily out of the gate. Now, in a lot of my articles, I do name it specifically when we're talking about specific issues. I name those issues, and I name you know, the black community, etc. But there's a balance there. There's a balance there. Um, I don't know if I've struck the right balance, but this is my best approximation at it.
0: So, I will say this. Uh, your main game is lacking uh you and i are gonna have to work on that um i do like yeah. i do like the the mandalorian and i like this one but there's not enough there's like kind of memeing. uh it, it's good but it can use work i mean i'm not hey, saying man, I'm, I, I'm 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 not an aficionado but I, I i dabble in the the memes that's good man
1: hey man whatever it takes <laughs> to get people's eyes on this what are you telling me that my my chart isn't an eye catcher my, uh, these are the last days of the great American empire by Debbie Downer chart. That's not really something that jumps off the page of people. What are you talking about, man? How are you you yeah. getting excited about that?
0: <laughs> yeah. So not all of us were math nerds in high school. Uh, I'm, I'm well, lucky yeah. I could spell math. Uh, That's good. It's, you know, math is only six letters. So, uh, I'm, I'm lucky I'm, I made it through math.
1: Listen, I, you know, it's, so I actually attribute, so I graduated college in the middle of the great recession, Right. I did not plan on coming out of college and and taking – I took a really crappy marketing research analyst job for like 30K just because it was – I was the only person in my whole graduating friends group that actually got a job. Like I took whatever I could, and I did not necessarily think I was going to do that. But all I did for my first year and a half of, of my professional life was bury my face in Excel spreadsheets, split market data, and find little things, little angles at sales, things like that. I honestly think without that year and a half, I wouldn't be a libertarian because when it came to – as I you know, went on with my life, as I started to ask myself questions like why doesn't this work or why doesn't this function properly, I always lean back on what kind of data can I get my hands on? What can I look at? What, can I, what, what data can I look at and pour through and figure out what the real problem is? Because there's a lot of stuff that people say anecdotally, but what I've always found in sales is – A lot of this anecdotal stuff that's happening with the market, when you pull the numbers apart, that's not the case. It's what people believe, and I've always been able to find angles to, you know, enrich myself, which is, you know, why I do pretty well at sales. But specific to this conversation of politics, a lot of the reason why, you know, I don't think the same way on what the issues of the black community are is because I can look at the data and say, hey, man, thirty-three percent is a ridiculously low number for kids growing up with married parents. But that's only because I took the time to look at the data. Most people don't take that step. So, as, as dumb as it seems with the charts, I honestly believe that the only reason I got to the point where I'm at in my political beliefs is because I kind of love charts. So, there you so, go, buddy. I will,
0: I will say that libertarians are like to have this weird soft core fetish for charts and like data. It is true. And, then, and it's true. I'm just giving you shit just because uh, <laughs> you're on the show and I like you. If I didn't give you shit that you should be worried. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> so Will was at, so I will say this, I, I'm going to throw a hundred percent of names out on this. So clubhouse is my new addiction. Uh, And Will like, so there was this like, like train of buses coming through, right? Will like yeeted me under that first bus <laughs> and just left me there to die. And that motherfucker just watched me rot. So, uh, Cajun Libertarian uh, said that this show is shit. And just because you're right doesn't mean you get to say it. <laughs> um,
3: but, uh. <laughs> because you got 3,000 viewers in two months doesn't mean he gets to talk trash
0: on us. That's great. Damn right. But, uh, no, so, I did want to cover one more thing. Uh, we got one minute here. Um, and we're not th- time-authorian, mm. Close. Time authoritarians I'm struggling it, it's, We're close, we're almost done cool. But uh So I debated on bringing this up or not And I think it's a good discussion point And this individual says I voted Green in 2016 because I didn't like Johnson I voted Libertarian in 2020 Even though I wanted Vermin or Justin Now I'm really getting to the point of not wanting to vote I'm not a real anarchist You should vote And then they say change my mind um my position is is we can disagree on a lot of things as far as like anarchism minarchism whatever abortion you know how how certain things of policy should work Why do I always come back to abortion that's, that's just i don't know it's just me you like i don't know to rattle the
1: cage you like to rattle the cage yeah i
0: i i like i like getting hate mail i guess i don't know <laughs> um but uh as long as you're looking to reduce the federal government to a manageable size, whether it be some small level of government. So like, you know, a small federal government or even like local and state governments, I will, I'll work with anybody, you know, we can squabble about the rest of the shit. It's just getting to that point requires all of us to work together. Um, and that's why I'm not really Big on caucuses, especially when it creates a, this great big divide. Um, now, I love like the Waffle House caucus or the Shonies caucus, you know, shit that's funny. Or Except the, it matters. I'm, not, I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah, the, like food matters. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> or, I'm not going to plug the seafood caucus because, you know. Too late. You just did. <laughs> yeah, I know. But uh, yeah. I mean it does come down to you have to be willing to work with people who might have these same sort of uh kind of grid square uh end goal. We can we can argue over the very final point but as long as we're heading in the correct direction um well I'm willing to work with the Green Party. I'm not by any means pro communism. But as as long as they have the same end goal where we reduce the federal government, we can fight out what the correct position to have is at the end. Um, I'm not talking violating the NAP, the NAP, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is we can have these discussions and figure out how to get the last 10 yards, I guess is what I'll say. Um,
3: My argument to him is like whenever I vote, you know, and we don't have libertarians painting the entire ballot and you've got, you know, a Republican and Democrat and that's all you have a choice between. You do your research and you figure out one of them is more likely to shrink the size of government, probably not a whole lot more likely than the other one. You vote for whichever one's going to shrink the size of government. Voting is the exact same thing. It's an option. It's a way to get the government a little smaller. It's maybe it's not the anarchy switch you want to flip. But, damn it, don't leave the box unchecked. Help us get another step of the way so we can get a little closer.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: Rich?
2: I'm good, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just say uh, this. I I say all the time I'm not going to vote anymore because there's the statistical zero that it actually – the chance of – of your vote being the vote that makes the difference is statistically zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still on election day, get up and I go, and I, I write in candidates that I, I appreciate. I vote for ones that uh, if they're on the ballot, that uh, that can make a difference. And uh, um, I don't know. I, I'm not one of those people. I am an anarchist, but I don't fall into the camp that believes that somehow I'm promoting or uh, um, somehow I'm uh I can't think of the word for it, but that because I vote, I'm somehow giving consent to the system. I don't think that's true. That's why I think
0: libertarians, that's why we're right as far as voting nota. I think giving that, that extra option of saying, fuck you, we don't like anybody you ran, uh, is a better option than deciding between senile Joe Biden and belligerent Trump,
2: who is also senile. Uh, I I have a friend whose name I write in. That's what I do. I write it. Unless there's That's a candidate I do believe in, I, I go vote and I write in a friend of mine's name. And in, in Tennessee, or at least where I'm at in my county, you got a spinning wheel you got to do. And then you got to tap when you're going to get to the letters. And he's got a long name. So it takes a while. But I <laughs> have something takes,
1: takes real conviction to make that happen. That's right. I believe I wrote, in the dinner.
0: I wrote myself in for Congress because the congresswoman <laughs> who ran or the, who is now the congresswoman in my district, I, I was willing to stand there and spell out Christopher darnell which is that's a lot of syllables for some of us who can't read and write um <laughs> <laughs> but uh well gentlemen uh micah i would like to say from the bottom of my heart you are practically not a real libertarian um well rich myself we're not real libertarians either there's no such thing and
1: uh good night so thank you guys for having me on i appreciate it thanks man